In November 2016, a peace agreement was signed by the Congress of Colombia. The ratification was seen as a turning point in the oldest ongoing armed conflict in the Americas, and one which has ravaged Colombia for over five decades. By some measures, this conflict started with the creation of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, in 1964. Funded largely by kidnap and ransom, extortion and the production and distribution of illegal drugs, the FARC became a Marxist-Leninist peasant force responsible for the lives of thousands. Since the turn of the millennia, something changed. To better understand the situation, I had the amazing opportunity to speak with two experts on Colombia. My name is Marinjelka Prada. I'm a professor of law at Universidad Rosario in Bogotá, Colombia. First of all, it is important for those that do not know Colombia is that we have been for over 50 years in an armed conflict. But I will say that we have been over 50 years in peace processes as well, right? So when you see the story of Colombia, you see a story of continuous peace negotiations, some of which have been a failure and some of which has been successful in changing at least the conflict. processes, we have implemented mechanisms of what we know as transitional justice. The president before Juan Manuel Santos, President Álvaro Uribe Vélez, he actually tried to negotiate with the guerrilla groups and he did a peace process with the paramilitary groups. So the current president, one of his proposals for the campaign was the negotiation of peace with the guerrillas. So there was a personal and political interest to negotiate peace with the FARC because there have been many attempts to negotiate peace that have been huge failures that have affected the Colombian society. And I also think the time was right. The guerrilla in Colombia have always expressed the desire of at some point negotiate peace and rejoin the not only civil society but the political fight to gain power through democracy. After the signing of a peace treaty in Havana in June 2016, methods of transitional justice were implemented to seek justice for many of those affected by the conflict in Colombia. These methods of transitional justice, which include truth commissions and special units, emphasize restorative and reparative measures. Coined as a comprehensive system for truth, justice, reparation and non-repetition, the program clearly indicates that it seeks for reconciliation between the victims and the perpetrators of the 50-year conflict. But what about now? Two years later? What is the situation in Colombia between the government, the people and the remaining armed forces? How successful have these methods of transitional justice been? I think transitional justice in Colombia specifically, it has achieved many important things. Although I think 
transitional justice can never achieve all its objectives because of structural problems in a country like Colombia. I do think that it has been very helpful to guarantee their rights and visibilize sectors that were completely forgotten. Displaced population, women and victims of sexual violence. So my feeling is that transitional justice and the peace process in Colombia has been highly important for our society. And what I think is most important is, and what I hope, <laughs> what my hope is, is that after this peace process, we will be able to start talking about more structural problems in the country that have been left aside because every time we wanted to talk about those structural problems, the answer was we need to deal with the most complicated problem that Colombia has, that is the armed conflict. Furthermore, I think that especially the current transitional justice system, the Justice Peace Tribunal, will help understand and clarify many things of our history that have been hidden by political and economic powers, and that in itself will also be highly important. that Colombia has had a long history in peace negotiations with the guerrilla groups, but I wanted to know what happens after a formal agreement on peace is signed between the head of a state and the head of a guerrilla group. What's left behind? And who? A study conducted by the National University of Colombia showed that up to 30% of the now former combatants of the FARC were women. But despite a similar percentage taking part in the reintegration programs, it soon became clear to me that the different needs and challenges of the women combatants were not adequately addressed in their reintegration to the society. Currently in Colombia, the government has tried to have a gender approach to the disarmament, demobilization and reintegration policy. What I think is important is that having a gender approach is not just counting women. And what I mean by that is that when we talk about gender approach, what we expect is to have a critical perspective of how gender relationships in a specific topic, in this case, conflict and post-conflict and the process of reintegration specifically affect women. So, for example, in the reintegration of ex-combatants, I will say three possibilities. So, one possibility is to have policy that does not differentiate between women and men. Right? So, you have a general policy of disarmament, demobilization and reintegration that applies equally to women and men. And that clearly does not have a gender. Then you have a second possibility. You create a policy that does differentiate between women and men. But this second type of policy is the one having a wrong approach to what a gender perspective means. Because it will differentiate but it reproduces gender which I'm referring to as a more critical approach. And in this approach, which is not just about differentiating between women and men, but about creating a policy that really puts into question gender power relationships and that recognizes that 
women combatants had particular experiences during the war and they will have particular experiences in reintegration to civil society and that it is important to give them the possibility to create different subjectivities of womenhood in general. The second expert I interviewed was Dr. Maria Estrada Fuentes, who works in the fields of applied theatre and conflict transformation. In her direct work with ex-combatant women in Colombia through art practice, she came across the notion of complex victimhood and the real discrepancy between the law on reintegration and the reality of these programmes. When I first started working with these communities, I was interested in seeing how art practice could contribute to peace building in Colombia. And I was interested in working with victims of the armed conflict. So when I started conducting work with ex-combatants, there were many, many things that were fascinating and interesting and scary and also exciting. But the one thing that comes back over and over again in my research are the discrepancies between the legal frameworks that allow for reparations and rehabilitation programs to exist and the lived realities of those who should theoretically benefit from them. So in the Colombian context, the law establishes that these individuals are victims of forced recruitment and reintegration programs are also reparation programs in the case of the minors. So in principle, I think this is more or less straightforward, but in practice it is extremely complicated. It's clear that something's missing. In the Colombian context, a former combatant can partake in either an individual or a collective reintegration program. The collective programs have been in place since the peace negotiations during the 1990s with other smaller groups such as the M19. While the collective programs are often preferred by the ex-combatants due to the importance of the community while in the armed organizations, they are somewhat inaccessible without a large-scale disarmament. The individual programs, on the other hand, allow a former combatant to surrender to the military or the police by themselves. 
However, the individual programs are disliked by the FARC due to the government's earlier use of the programs as an intelligence service to the activities of the guerrillas. According to Dr. Estrada Fuentes, the functional issues of the reintegration programs aren't the only problem. The reintegration program does not consider the affective and the emotional dimensions of warfare and therefore the reintegration that comes afterwards. The individuals that work in these programs, they must take into account these different ties because they receive one-to-one -one attention and then of course there's a lot of conversation and a lot of support that happens in these conversations for people to firstly to be able to address the loss that they have gone through and also to reframe it somehow and in that sense it is up to the particular caregiver that someone is assigned to to be able to address these issues or not. The reintegration programs, whether individual or collective, fail to address the complexities of different individuals. They do not consider the struggles or challenges of former combatants. Even more concerning, they also ignore the particular skills and experience of the ex-guerrillas. Through her work in the communities, Dr. Estrada Fuentes had met many such individuals. There are many conversations that I've had with former combatants that have really stayed with me over the years. But I can think about a particular experience of a former member of the National Liberation Army, which is effectively the only guerrilla organization that is still active in the country, and I call her Alejandra. Alejandra voluntarily joined the National Liberation Army in the 1980s, when she was around 17 or 18 years old. And after 28 years of being a member of this armed organization, she voluntarily deserted. And there were security reasons for her to do that, because confrontations with the military were very strong, and she feared for her life. But she also had two children who were already adults, and. One of them was a member of Colombian military, and they were asking her to please leave the guerrillas. So when this woman was a combatant, she first started working as a nurse, and eventually she became a trauma surgeon in the ranks. It was not that she went off to college and she trained to be a doctor or anything like that. She trained in practice during combat, working on the field. And all that experience that she gained over those nearly three decades is not taken into account in her reintegration process. And she cannot work in any capacity in the care sector. And there is also no institutional way for her to validate her previous experiences and training and maybe earn a degree quickly so that she can be employed and so that she can make a living in a civilian context, doing what she knows how to do best. And when I met her, she had recently left the ELN and she was in the reintegration program. But the type of assistance, the type of support and requirements that she had to fulfill to be able to complete the reintegration route were exactly the same of someone who maybe was in their early 20s, who had no experience and who had just left the reintegration process. So it is, it is very complicated to think about these very long-term experiences and, and lifelong commitments to some kind of particular way of living. People who are very skilled and suddenly when they leave the armed group, they have, they have nothing left for themselves.
Grouping former combatants into one uniform crowd of ex-militants ignores not only the different skills and challenges of individuals, but also fails to acknowledge that these combatants have had different motivations for joining and staying in the armed organizations. Unlike often thought, many of the combatants haven't joined purely out of ideological convictions. Some have been promised access to education, some were there to find missing family members. To some, the armed organization was their family. There was a young woman and she joined the FARC when she was five years old because her mother was murdered by the Colombian military and so her father decided to join the guerrillas. And so this, this, this girl was the daughter of the commander of the guerrilla after a few years and she lived there until she was 16 years old. Her father was murdered and the FARC were literally her family. So when she was captured during combat and taken to the reintegration program, she not only lost all the military structure that she had, but she lost her friends, she lost her loved ones, she lost her family, she lost everyone. And then it was all by herself trying to rebuild her life in, in, in a civilian context, completely detached from everything that she knew was real and that she cared for. She has a child now, she's a single mother, and she still struggles with the different um, challenges that a civilian context has for, the, for her, despite having been living a, as a civilian for over a decade now. I asked my interviewees what they hoped for the future of Colombia. They both raised similar ideas. Forgiveness, moving forward, and kindness. Taking down stereotypes and understanding individual experiences and challenges and accepting the ex-combatant's dual nature as both a victim and a perpetrator, a survivor, is fundamental in providing the former guerrillas with effective and just reintegration. The podcast you've just listened is called Complex Victims, Valuable Survivors, the story of Colombian reintegration, and it was hosted by me, Sylvia Kinen. It is a part of the University of Work's podcast series, Orders in Decay. Thank you for listening.